Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Right, uh, good evening everybody and welcome to the LSE and welcome to this event on the early history of humanity. Uh, We have never been stupid until now. But also welcome uh, both of the people who are in the room with us here and the people who are joining us around the world online. I'm Simon Glendinning, and I'm the Professor of European Philosophy and Head of the European Institute here at LSE, and I'm delighted to be in conversation this evening with David Wengro. David is a British archaeologist and Professor of Comparative Archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology, University College London, He's also been a visiting professor at New York University, conducted archaeological field work in Africa and the Middle East, and he's the author of three books and numerous academic articles on topics including the origins of writing, ancient art, Neolithic societies, and the emergence of the first states in Egypt and Mesopotamia. In 2020, uh, David completed a book on the history of inequality with the anthropologist the late anthropologist uh, David Graeber, the bestseller, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. And I first wondered, you know, what, what do you get when you cross an archaeologist and an anthropologist? And it turns out that the answer is rather big and looks like this. It seemed to be, for the two of them, a kind of marriage made in heaven and a kind of interdisciplinary dream Uh, for uh, university-type people who are often um, setting a great premium in universities for interdisciplinary studies rather than everybody siloed Mm. in their little boxes. And it's actually, though, a very rare eventuality that anything really comes of this. Of course, there are many multi-authored papers and so on, but they tend still to be disciplinary rather than interdisciplinary. And one might wonder why it worked so well in this case. Uh, clearly not shared methods, one an archaeologist, one an anthropologist, but there's certainly a a shared sensibility, a shared ambition to do something, what what might we call, I think in their words, reversing the polarities of earlier thinking. And here, paradigmatically, the kind of thinking represented, not really by a proper anthropologist, by a classicist, James Fraser in... um, Uh, in his early work, The Golden Bough. Fraser says in that book, if any of my readers set out with the notion that all races of men think and act much as the same way as educated Englishmen, the evidence of superstitious belief and custom collected in this work should suffice to disabuse him of so erroneous a presupposition. Well, that idea that uh, they are very unlike us is the uh, polarity that's being reversed systematically in some ways in the work of the two Davids. Not just looking at early humanity as savage or wild or uncivilized or barbarian. People who are essentially stupid people having stupid uh, superstitious beliefs and practices. We have never been stupid it would be an important sort of uh, protocol 
for thinking about early humanity that I think belongs very centrally to uh, David and David's work. They're not the first to say this kind of thing. In the 1930s, uh, reading Fraser, in fact, um, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, it never becomes plausible that people do these things out of stupidity. Indeed, he went on to say that if there is a stupidity in the vicinity here, it perhaps lies with us and with what Wittgenstein called the stupid superstition of our time, namely that these early people were stupid. These are just people, like us. Equally perceptive, they say, equally confused. So reversing the polarities here is fundamental to the writing partnership, but it's not <clears throat> all there is that they share between them, alongside that shared sensibility with respect to early and indigenous humanity. Uh, the two Davids share a political outlook too, and we will get to see something of that a little later. Well, here's the plan for this evening. We're going to take our bearings from an advert from the book, which is this advert. This picture actually was taken by David Wengrove. And when I looked at it, I thought it was quite dangerous because it's in a tube. And he was sort of walking backwards. <laughs> it could have been all over. But anyway, uh, it's time to change the course of human history, starting with the past. Sorry, I just should have said that the people who are online can't see that. Uh, it's time to change the course of human history, starting with the past. And we're going to be guided by that. Uh, asking ourselves when and how did something like a course of history begin? Uh, then how should we understand the course of history once it gets going? And finally, issues around changing the course of history, at least shifting us from being, as they call it, stuck to uh, getting in some way historically unstuck. So that's our plan. And now please welcome to the conversation, David Wengro. Right, David. Um, if I may, Simon, I can't take credit for the photo. Oh. It was, I remember because I was very frustrated because, you know, for a Londoner, that's as good as it gets, you know, getting a poster on the tube. And I was out of the country for the, pretty much the whole thing and getting increasingly frustrated that I couldn't nip down into Finsbury Park and you know, have a look. So I think it was my friend Elif who, who actually sent me that. And now you mention it. I should have been more concerned <laughs> at the time. Yeah. You're, you're quite right. She must have been backing onto the... Uh, onto the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to turn to our first question now, <clears throat> uh, David, which is about when and how it all began. And uh, this is the question that we might call the question of the dawn or of the breaking dawn. Um, the, what used to be called, and I don't know what you think of this expression, but it was used a lot in the 20th century, the awakening mind or the awakening spirit of mankind. And since at least uh, Rousseau in the 1750s, there was a sort of puzzle about human beginnings, which we might get to. But we're going to begin with questions about human beings before and after the dawn. And uh, so moving from, as it were, a purely what represented as moving from a purely natural condition to uh, a life of a Cultural diverse kind, culturally diverse kind. Um, 
in your book you discuss something about ideas at the beginning when you take up something uh, called the sapient paradox, which in some ways will also be answering questions about the beginning. And you give a really new answer actually to that old paradox. So perhaps we could begin by me asking you to outline the sapient paradox, how it's been framed mm. uh, conventionally up to now, and how you rethink that, mm -hmm. and then we'll get back to beginnings. Yeah, well, I can't really do what you're asking me to do, because oh. the, the distinction which you draw between, you know, the sort of imaginary state before the dawn, then after the dawn, to me, is a kind of mystical understanding of the past. It's got very little to do with my field of archaeology uh, or I believe uh, with anthropology but it does have this interesting genealogy in philosophy and in European thought um, which I think is interesting in itself but partly what we're doing in our book where the dawn of the title doesn't refer to anything that happened in the past at all. It's uh, oriented to the future. In other words, it's the possibilities that become available precisely when you do away with that rather mystical uh, way of understanding the past, which, uh, you know, you refer to this idea of the sapient paradox which is a discredited idea that we do away with. But we, we thought we had to mention it. Go on, now do, in, do, in do the, the mentioning so that we get a bit into that. Yeah, we should say what it is. Um, <laughs> it's an idea which um, is discredited. And it, it, it was an idea, I think it was the archaeologist Colin Renfrew right. who, who coined the term. But he wasn't the only one thinking that way about two or three decades ago. It seemed as if there was this great paradox in the evidence uh, of the early history of the human species, where you had this kind of gross mismatch between the biological evolution of Homo sapiens and the appearance in archaeology of evidence for typically human behaviors, by which we mean sort of typically weird and colorful things like uh, you know, elaborate funerals and, and rock art and body ornamentation a gap of something in the order of 70 or 80,000 years. Now, if this were true, it would certainly be a paradox. Uh, and explanations were offered along the lines that, uh, well, I think probably the most unlikely one is that there was some peculiar, very late cognitive mutation in the human brain. Uh, before about 30,000 years ago, we're supposed to imagine early humans living in some strange sort of semi-conscious world um, where they're not doing these kinds of things. Now, that theory never made a blind bit of sense uh, because most of the evidence for all of that fun stuff, the art, the ritual, the symbolism, is largely concentrated in one part of the world, which is Europe. Um, and it's not because anything particularly exciting happened in Europe 30,000 years ago. Uh, it's because archaeology has been pursued for much longer in Europe by rich institutions like this one. Well, not this one, because you don't do archaeology, but like my one. <laughs> um, and there is, there is simply an enormous bias uh, 
towards the European uh, context. And as archaeology and prehistory became more global and various parts of Africa uh, opened up to new research, the whole paradox just melted away. And these days we've got compelling evidence for just those sorts of behaviors. Not as much evidence, although we do have these fantastic cave paintings in Borneo now, all the way over the other side of Eurasia, as early uh, and as much fun as all the famous stuff in, in Cantabria, France, and Spain, and so on. In Africa, we have evidence of that kind going back to about 100,000 years ago, and I suspect it will just keep going back and back as the information. Of course, you know, the further back you go, the less survives as well. So the paradox is not really a paradox. Um, it's, so a, let's just, it's a red herring. The, the, the paradox, as it was stated, was the idea that there was this mismatch between biology and culture, mm -hmm. that you had the setup, the biological setup, mm -hmm. already mm -hmm. there, or apparently already there mm -hmm. for a long time until anything culturally interesting starts happening. That's right. And so you get this uh, question of there really is like a before and after, isn't it? It's like you've got this natural yeah. human occurring. You could see it as the kind of last yeah. ditch attempt to preserve a way of thinking about the human past, which you know I guess one could trace back to people like uh, Lucien Lévy-Brule in the 1910s with his distinction between primitive mentality and modern mentality, you know, how natives think. But you also had people still making these kind of claims well into the later part of the 20th century. You remember the bicameral mind theory, Julian Jaynes in no. the 1970s, The Origins of Consciousness. It was a very popular book at the time, which put forward an argument that until as late as the end of the Bronze Age, um, people did not have full self-consciousness. It's an extraordinary idea. You know, he thought it started with uh, Homer and Homeric epic. In our book, we talk about Merce Eliade, the Romanian historian of religions, who did have a phrase that was a bit like the dawn of everything, the illo tempore, which was, you know, his claim was that uh, until the influence of Judaism, which he reviled, being a sort of monstrous anti-Semite, um, until the advent of Judaism and the Old Testament, people did not have a sense of linear time right. at all, or a sense of history as we understand it. And they all lived, and he claimed some of them still live, in this kind of eternal, cyclical existence where you're consciously, uh, sorry, constantly uh, recapitulating all of the great events of your ancestors or you know, of the gods or of the people who created everything mm at the dawn of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, so you do have there that idea then. I, I, I really like that. that well, we don't. Sapien, that was his idea. I know. I know, yeah. I know I'm not saying yeah. you, we like that. Uh, the Sapien paradox, though, yeah. uh, is as the last gasp. I think right? so. Yeah. So the last yeah. gasp of a clear idea of a, of a human being in its purely natural state at some point shifting over into a being which produces cultural artifacts and cultural wealth of extraordinary variety of kinds. <laughs> you think it's a red herring, you've just said, you know, it, mm. no, it goes right back. And so uh, as far as your account is concerned, that the, um, the section of the book that begins mm. this says, as soon as we were human, we started doing human things. Mm -hmm. So that's, as it were, getting rid of the paradox by 
pushing the starting point, as it were, of the collaboration of cultures back to the bio biological mm -hmm. beginnings too. So that instead of having the um, lack of synchrony between biology and culture, cultural development, uh, you push it back, and now they're back in sync again. Is that, is that a fair description of the kind of way you think this out? It is, and you've got to also factor in that what we know today about the biological side is completely different from what any of the people we've been talking about would ever have imagined. Most importantly, we know now that if you go back 200, 300,000 years when the genetic makeup of our species is sort of coming together on the African continent, we know now um, that you have multiple hominin species coexisting and periodically converging, coming apart with the Sahara acting as a sort of pump that opens and closes for contact, intermixing, they're not intermixing, and you end up in the fossil evidence with such a huge variety of physical types, all human uh, in some way, but, uh, you know, as, as somebody joked, maybe it was us, <laughs> it would be a bit like going to Tolkien's Middle Earth or something. I mean, the diff physical differences would be almost that great, uh, sort of people without fully formed chins and, you know, huge physical differences, living in an extraordinary variety of different habitats, everything from coastal to tropical forest to savanna. People who study this stuff have completely done away with this idea that there was one cradle or setting right. for the origins of humanity. And even as recently in evolutionary terms as 50,000 years ago, you had four or five different types of human wandering around on this planet. There were us, there were Neanderthals, there were Denisovans, there was little uh, so-called Homo floresiensis, named after the island of Flores in Indonesia. Those are the ones they call hobbits, little folk. And it is like Tolkien. And then there was also this other species uh, quite recently discovered on the island of uh, Luzon in the Philippines. So the whole picture has changed dramatically. And I think it's completely logical and reasonable to assume that if you've got that much variability on the biological, you know, on the physical plane, uh, and in terms of environments and habitats, what should we expect culturally? Well, surely even more variation in terms of things like language, child-rearing practices, family structures. So, you know, this entire sort of rather fantastical notion that there's just one simple moment when humanity happens, there's like a click. Um, I don't think anyone even asks that question anymore. Yeah, actually, in my very, very few people I've ever read do think it's like yeah. a moment no. like that. Um, however, if we take your picture seriously, and instead of thinking mm. that we have this illusory picture of uh, human beings in a kind of n perfectly natural form, then at some point, like not some point in like, like a click, but like a, perhaps over thousands of years, but gradually, mm. increasingly, uh, cultural forms arrive arising, and so they're they're looking at a before and after event, mm. and they talk about the human revolution, don't they? It's well, that, a sort that, of that was just another way of saying the sapient paradox. I yeah. think it was the Cambridge uh, anthropologist Paul Mellars. Yeah. but it is that idea of the human becoming yeah. at that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's and generally thought that that's all wrong. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's suppose it's all wrong and that you're, you get it right when you say, 
as soon as we were human, we started doing human things. Mm -hmm. Then the question to you would be, well, what happened before then? These hominid types, uh, aren't we back in exactly the same kind of paradox that we've got something which is basically the same as whatever comes after? And how are we going to make sense of the transition or transformation or revolution or whatever it was from some condition? And perhaps we'll, uh, a reader of yours might start using the same language again. That, that before your dawn, or mm. not dawn, but before the uh, time in when we started doing human things, there were very human-like things around which weren't doing human-like things. Mm. How did how did how did that how do you imagine some way in which that shift happened, or does that not even begin to be a, a kind of coherent thought for you? Well, in fairness to the audience who who may not have read the book, uh, I should stress it is not a, a book about human origins. The experiment that we try in the book um, is to say, well, what happens if we stop altogether making up stories? What if we resist the temptation to conjure up from our imaginations what this primordial soup might or might not have been, given that we have no empirical basis either way? Um, so we try an experiment, which is simply to say, what if we begin the history of human societies only at that point where we can actually say something concretely on the basis of direct archaeological evidence about what they were up to. So it's a more empirical approach, uh, less uh, speculative. And if you do that, uh, what you find is something extraordinary and completely different from these rather simplistic, uh, sort of predictable uh, fairy stories that people have been making up for generations. Yeah, I, in fact, I indicate that uh, one of those fairy stories that, that's been very influential in Europe goes back mm. at least to Rousseau. Mm -hmm. And I think I've shared with you documents where you get similar stories, but Rousseau and then Kant and then Hegel, mm -hmm. and then almost a sort of uh, parallel in Marx as well with his vision of a kind of early co communism. Mm. Um, but all of them thought that there, there was this pre-human condition which, through some incredible rupture, uh, breaks from its merely natural condition into this uh, cultural and quasi-rational condition, the, the life of a rational animal beginning, mm. which is a very dominant conception of the human being uh, in that European history. And I suppose what you're saying is that whether or we are rational animals or not, it's, we're not going to be en entertained thoughts about whether something dramatic happened or not, some great rupture event, some great beginning. You just begin from where we can make empirical mm -hmm. uh, ju judgments mm -hmm. and, and take it from there and, and leave the rest to fairy stories that, well, no, what, that, what we that do others with, can talk What we try and do with the rest... Um, is just take on board the latest research in human genomics, in prehistory and archaeology, in the study of early technologies, uh, and any, anything else you can grasp at uh, to say anything about those very, very early phases uh, of human development. But it's not the focus of the book at all. Uh, there are other books that, that do that much better. Um, we, we really want to talk about society. And to be able to reconstruct that, you do need more than a few bits of broken flint and the odd fossil bone or tooth. Um, but it does go back a fair way. So, yeah. you know, we can begin saying things which are relevant 
to human social arrangements as far back as at least the last ice age. Super. Which is, which is a fair way well, back. Well, let, let's push ourselves uh, forward then from uh, mystical beginnings in, into mm. that sort of known world. And now we're moving to the uh, second kind of question that we're looking at, which is about not the, the beginnings of the course of history, but the course of history itself. And um, that too has had its stories, uh, pictures of um, the shape of human development from its beginning. Um, okay, you, you've got a beginning which you don't have any particular interest in it being a beginning. <laughs> it's just, it does, we see it, we start seeing it at a certain point, and it has a course of history after that point that we might follow. Now, in the old picture that you, again, actually, you will refer to Rousseau particularly, mm. there's a uh, uh, an understanding of the course of human history which is laid out there, which again you want to break with in a crucial way. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the, the Rousseauist picture of the course of history mm. and how you want to think this differently in your work. Well, we talk um, specifically about the second discourse, the discourse on the origins of inequality, which is also how our project started. We started working on it around 2009, so shortly after the last big financial crash. Here we are again. Um, and, you know, that's when you had this glut of literature on inequality. Um, most of it by uh, people not in our field, economists, obviously, uh, but you know, also people sort of weighing in with, with big new takes on the broad sweep of human history. Right. And what was really striking to us was the way that these uh, two or three hundred year old uh, um, speculations, so Hobbes and all the rest of it, uh, was coming back with this extraordinary uh, sort of force. Yeah. Um, and with very little sort of critical acknowledgement of any of the things we've actually found out about the course of human history over the last uh, you know, 40 or 50 years. It's really quite striking mm. and was one of the motivations for, for starting to, to think about what we could contribute uh, right. to that. And that, that, um, that story that's still in the air there that these people are sort of on the coattails of mm. is one of an origin, originary condition of natural equality. Yeah, I mean, you have people still referring to what they call a state of nature. Right. Um, which is kind of extraordinary. I mean, I've got no idea what they have in mind. Uh, well, they, they project it every time they... See, I mean, in, in Levi-Strauss, for example, as an anthropologist, when he goes and visits the Nambiquara, yeah. he's lying around a campfire uh, reflecting wonderfully on the, on the Nambiquara as in a state of natural goodness. And that's in the 20th century. He's, again, just sort of seeing a world through Rousseauvian eyes. I don't remember that bit of Lévi-Strauss on the Nambiquara. Oh, I don't you? Oh, no. <laughs> it's very good. It's around the campfire. It's in his diary. It's not in the uh, Tristropique. Right. Uh, anyway, there it is. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that, that idea of a kind of natural goodness of early humanity, which we fall away from, Yes, but Levi-Strauss, Levi we should add, uh, knew perfectly well that the Nambiquara were not early humanity. No, I know. No, he did. So let's keep... The, yeah, uh, yeah, but the, the, those uh, speculators look yeah. through this in, in a mirage. So you think they're thinking of the Nambiquara? 
in Mata Grasso. No, they're not thinking of that. No, the, I think that the people who are on the coattails of the Rousseauist pick story are just like the people like Fraser, who like to look at indigenous humanity oh, as if yeah, it no. was some kind I mean, we, of model of the We were earth, reading you know. new books. I mean, we were reading yeah. things that were coming out at the time and becoming you know, quite influential bestsellers. Uh, you know, people like Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. Uh, for example, I forget the rest, but you know this sort of thing. Um, you know, explicitly um, saying, "Well, basically, Rousseau was right." Extraordinary. That's right. And you, your first line on Rousseau is, "No, he wasn't right at all. This is just—it's simply not true." No, no, no. You got us wrong there. You well, know, you do say that. No, we don't. We we quote the line from Rousseau himself. He's very explicit ah, in about the second being, discourse, yeah. hmm. where he says to the reader. Do not mistake what I'm telling you here as a factual account right. of anything that actually happened. He never intended it to no. be taken empirically. He says, this is a thought experiment which is intended to shed light on some fundamental paradoxes of human character. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything sort of anti-Rousseau in what we're doing or inconsistent or illogical in jettisoning some of the, uh, you know, the obviously speculative details. We're yeah. talking about 1743 or something. Um, but retaining some of the, the deeper insights, um, uh, yeah, we don't really have a problem with that. Right. So uh, I, I do take your point that Rousseau himself wasn't speculating on an actual form of state of nature of human beings. It was a, a a sort of construction in order to try to think through our own social relations now, right? Yeah. Uh, um, the social and it's also important to remember that what Rousseau pictured as the earliest state of human beings was not good. It was not a state of goodness or nobility. It's this very strange image he gives us of sort of humanity in the rough, where every individual is an isolate, just sort of wandering alone through the forest. And actually, it's it's a terribly sort of frightening picture, mm. where any attempt at, at, at social union or proximity uh, leads you into a trap. It leads you into into chains, into hierarchy. So you know this idea that Rousseau projected some image of natural goodness or the innate humanity, warmth of humanity, is is just not there in the second discourse at all. No. Uh, page three, though, you say the story <clears throat> is simply not true when you're looking not at Rousseau. Yeah, we're looking at the, century, modern at the modern bastardization right. of Rousseau. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's take that as read. You know, when when Rousseau, the Rousseauist story, not Rousseau, but the Rousseauist story is of first a rupture event in the history of humanity, which leads human beings consistently away from a sort of a, a, a constant process of alienation of our natural condition in this becoming modern story and one from human equality to one of human inequality mm -hmm. and that could be a picture that could seem very plausible to people when they look around and they see the gross inequalities in western societies and they might think oh yes I, I can well imagine that the you know this human past was like that and as you say there are actually people who thought that and you want to say that that story is not true Mm. And what is the story? Is there a story to replace that with? As there it went from equality to inequality, mm. general trend. <laughs> Do you have a kind of 
replacement story or is it just a yeah well, yeah please, i mean that, that's what fills the book that's why it's sort of 700 pages long and was intended really just uh, as the beginning of a much longer project we, we were going to write um at least three sequels because the other story uh is the the empirical one it's the one that takes as its starting point this incredible flood of new information that's come in from pretty much every corner of the world uh, over the last 30 or, or 40 years, which really makes you reconsider pretty much everything. I mean, the image that comes to my mind of what's happened to, you know, what you're calling the, uh, the course of human history or our, our picture, yeah. the broad sweep of human history. I was really struck when those images came out recently from the, uh, what's it called? Uh, James Webb telescope, right? Oh, yeah. Of the cosmos. <clears throat> and it's fantastic and, and completely disorienting. And you lose all your sort of stable points of reference. I think what's happened to our picture of human history is a bit like that. Right. Not because of us no, or no. this book, but just because of, you know, thousands and thousands of discoveries and audacious pieces of research all over the world by loads of people. Um, all the kind of stable reference points that we had, our egalitarian origins, the agricultural revolution as the end of all that and the beginning of private property, the origin of cities as an incubator for the state, it's all fallen to bits. Right. So what we're left with... <laughs> that's so good because, I mean, that's such a familiar picture. I right. mean, it certainly is for me. It's, I think it is what yeah. most people tend to think yeah. of when you say the course of human history. But you, it's so wonderful that you could describe it in less than 300 pages. Which immediately tells so, you it's wrong. I mean, if you could summarize it in <laughs> oh, one sentence. Right. Does that mean we can't be... have a counter story now? Well, not a one sentence no. counter story, but that's how, why the book's how many rather minutes long. Would you like? give, give us a bit. It's, uh, uh, well, I mean, if we go back to uh, those first kind of... Um, glimpses of evidence about what human beings are up to socially uh, what you see is not the kind of thing you could ever have invented out of your head you know sitting in your office at LSE so let's imagine what the earliest human societies were like what you see uh, on the ground um, not in one place or two places but in a whole series of different locations from Russia to the Mediterranean uh, is something very very peculiar so we're talking about the last Ice Age. Most of Northern Europe is, is glacial. And then you've got sort of steppe and tundra forests along the Mediterranean coast. And these little sort of pockets of refugia where humans and animals and other plants can exist. And, you know, this is tens of thousands of years before the coming of agriculture. So what we should be expecting is small egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers. Instead, we get things that look like royal burials. We get these, uh, these uh, evidence for these funerary rituals where individuals have been singled out, absolutely covered in riches and wealth and elaborate costumes, weaponry, things that look like crowns and regalia and symbols, uh, and given these burials that if you found them in any other period, you'd say, oh, well, this must be a chief or a king. Archaeologists like inventing names. You know, for instance, they call them things like the prince and the princess of this or that. Um, and the extraordinary thing about it, well, there's at least two things. Uh, one is that something like 70 or 80% of the human remains in these very elaborate burials show clear evidence of physical abnormalities. Mm. 
uh, often congenital uh, conditions. So these are people who physically would have appeared clearly different from the majority of people in their social group, who we today would almost certainly classify as having disabilities of various sorts. And they're the ones. And of course, that's just from the skeletal evidence. We don't know what's going on with pigmentation or, or cognitively. So these are exceptional people, exceptional individuals in one sense. The other amazing thing is that it's only in the burials. So we don't find evidence elsewhere that these really are societies that are forming themselves into little states or kingdoms or principalities. It seems to be largely contained in the ritual sphere. Now, that's already incredibly complex and, and not the kind of thing. I mean, you could dream it up, but people would just say, well, you're just making stuff up. <laughs> but it's all there. That's all based on actual evidence that we have to contend with. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And right. it opens up possibilities for thinking about all kinds of things, which we go into in the book. But it's all very different from this familiar... Yeah, yeah. You know, well, that's, that's super. And, and one <clears> of the things <throat> that you say in, in, the, in developing the, this kind of uh, empirical, empirically detailed journey through this long period of, uh, of human time is that not only should we give up ideas that there was some kind of, uh, let's call it, as you did at the beginning here, a mystical human beginning, um, but also you resist the idea that there's any kind of direction to this course of history. Uh, Rousseau too and all those after him thought there was a kind of teleological movement towards an end of mm. humanity which would have been an end of human self-realization. So that although Rousseau himself might have thought that there's a, uh, a an alienation of natural man, there's a de de process of de-alienation of rational man. And uh, <coughs> Kant and Hegel and Marx and people picked that up. Um, but you, I, I know that at a certain point in the book you say, we're trying to see what happens when you give up on the idea that there's any teleology here in the course of human history. Uh, and so you just have this fluid detail of, variation going on but towards the end of the book you also actually at various points but certainly towards the end you, you begin to wonder though about our situation not as some kind of necessary end point or developmental point in the in the in this moving history but just where we are today where you say that compared to a lot of human times we seem stuck it's a word you use more than once the stuckness mm. of of contemporary life and this takes us to the uh, last uh Question that we had lined up here. Really? We're, we're, we're already short. there. We're just no, getting we're gonna, started. We're going to have questions. Okay. <laughs> our, question, our discussion uh, about the, uh, the course of human history. There is, in a certain way, you're saying there is no course, no direction, no purposive movement towards some telos or, or an end of human history. But there is a sort of fact of stuckness that you mm. try to bring up. And you, uh, I mean, I guess the, the most strikingly political part of the book is, is some political hope with respect to that stuckness. How, how, how's the best way, let's just to dig it, dig it a little bit, the best way of understanding it, what you're saying when you say, we seem to be stuck. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, the best way is usually the simplest way. Um, I think there are various ways of, of reading uh, those bits of the book, but the simplest way to explain what we mean by stuck is simply being 
unable to move in the face of danger, even mortal danger. Right. We are, I mean, it is clear, I think, that only uh, very fundamental structural changes in our societies will secure a future for coming generations. Impending climate catastrophe, yeah. the erosion of democracy. It seems pretty clear that if we just carry on doing what we're doing, we will face almost certain catastrophe. And it is into that context of a collapsing world with no real, real alternatives in thought or practice that we want to make an intervention because it seemed to us that in addition to all the obvious obstacles to any kind of radical or structural change, uh, there's also been what my friend David used to call an assault on the political imagination coming from the direction of history via history and that's what this book is about is 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 pushing back uh, against that assault which tells you that to even attempt to engage in any fundamental rethinking of our social arrangements is pointless because there are these great forces of social evolution that will crush you uh, before you even get out of bed right i mean you, you took i, I totally get the climate change climate disaster it's just one example one one big sort one. of impending catastrophe and you talk too about erosions of democracy mm. um perhaps even disappearances but the appearance of democracy in history is that a mm. important political event for you in thinking about how to think beyond stuckness? Is yeah, it's a major theme of the book that, that um, you know, this idea that, that uh, what we call democracy had a birth and that that's something to do exclusively with the fifth century Athens, which as David always loved to point out, was a militaristic society based on chattel slavery where women were completely excluded from any form of political activity. That's our template yeah. for democracy. Um, is, is not particularly great uh, as a way of looking at history. And that if we, if we take the focus away from democracy as the history of a word in Latin and actually look at people actively engaging in participatory, consensual ways of forming decisions, yeah. there's a huge amount of evidence for that everywhere. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there's always some exclusion clause to say, well, that's not really democracy. Right, right. But the Greeks get to have it in spite of slavery, misogyny, and all the rest of it. So we try to undo, you know, we're obviously not the only people. Lots no. of people have tried to undo some of that conceptual damage. Do you, uh, do you, do you also resist then in, in a general way, given the anti-teleological mm. conception that you hold, uh, the idea that we should, we are or could be get unstuck by moving towards real democracy? Does real democracy have a strong meaning for you? Or well, I think the, you know, the, the, fir the first step is <laughs> to ask why we don't recognize it when we see it. And I, uh -huh. I think the simplest answer to that is probably racism. Right. Go on. Well, that's it. 
I mean, we're talking about you groups. Mean, like we can't, we're talking we can't about think groups. of ourselves democratically when we're not thinking of ourselves no. all as equal? Or? What I mean by we don't recognize it when we see it is that when we see it in Native American societies ah, or right. sub-Saharan African societies right, right. or in Afghanistan, yeah. Uh, we see it, but we don't see it, or yeah. we don't call it by the name. And yeah. I think we have to have to ask why that is, because that is the pretext on which you get military invasions saying we are bringing, yeah. guess what, democracy. Right, right, super. Okay, I've got that. Um, yeah, the bit between you and me, it's over. Okay. It was good, though. Um, what I we thought gonna... we were just warming up. I know, yeah. Well, maybe later. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. We've got questions... uh online, but I'm going to start in the room uh, to see uh, who might like to ask a question. Um, we have a, a microphone here and another one here. Uh, so if you put up your hand, uh, what questions do you have? My name is Dominic Stevens. I'm an enthusiastic amateur. One of the things that has happened in the past 30 or 40 years is that all of us have seen extraordinary examples on our high-definition televisions of extremely intelligent, culturally sophisticated animal behavior. So the gap between animals and human beings is being narrowed from the direction of animals, just as it's going back towards animals through archaeology. That's a lovely point. Actually, it was something I was going to bring up, but, but you really didn't like the idea of transitions. But it, one, one of the thoughts can be, we actually, we've got to rethink very radically, not just human history mm. but natural history over overall and animal life not being this sort of merely natural nothing yeah, going on I there completely of agree I mean people use words like animalistic as a derogatory term I mean it's it's a terrible insult to animals um, yeah. and you know the, I mean one of the ways in which those big gaps in early human history have been filled is by people drawing comparisons with other primates living primates um, and, and there are lots of insights that can come from that. But, by definition, they are not our living ancestors. <laughs> they are uh, uh, bonobos, gorillas, chimpanzees, and all the rest who went through some other process, which by definition means we're not looking at earlier versions of ourselves. Um, but I completely agree with what you're saying. And now one of the questions uh, in online is about uh, the bit that you didn't want to talk about. <laughs> the sapient paradox, um, with the suggestion that there are distinctive characteristics of a human language, mm. uh, the, the, all the stuff that uh, Chomsky wrote about in linguistics around compositionality and, and the possibility that once you have a certain kind of grammar, uh, you can say anything, mm. right? So you're not restricted uh, by grammar. On the contrary, it becomes un literally unlimited, the number of sentences that have become possible. And that this development, uh, 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 which of course Chomsky thought of as a, a universal, right, for human beings, it was a, a universal grammar, mm. um, uh, doesn't doesn't appear to belong to any form of life other than the human, and that 
it wouldn't have belonged to humanity in its earlier stages, and that might be a reason for thinking that there was at least some period of hominid life before compositionality, as it were, mm -hmm. appears. So that you have linguistic developments which produce this almost out-of-nothing event of, of awakening. Yeah, I mean, it's one of many quintessentially human capacities yeah. that um, we don't know, frankly, uh, when they became available, if they became available together. But it's, it's one of those uh, things that it, it is extremely difficult, like the capacity to make images or what the uh, uh, psychologist uh, Endel Tulving called chronesthesia, the ability to project yourself mentally into the past or into the future. It's very hard to envisage how humans can be humans without these things. Yeah. And perhaps they all came together simultaneously, or perhaps they have slightly different evolutionary pasts. I don't think we're anywhere close to really, uh, really understanding that. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh... Hi, my name is Sophie. Um, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming and speaking. Um, just going back to this slide here with this question of kind of changing the course of human history, starting with the past, what with this book are you hoping is the conception of the past that people then take into mm. the future? What is the non-academic implication it, in addition to kind of changing the status quo, yeah. not going, yeah. Thank you, Sophie. It's, um, it's basically a much more open picture. It's a much less rigid or, or determined picture of the human path. It's full of uh, paths not taken, which could lead to alternative futures. So it's you know, also in answer to your earlier question, you know, what does this other course of human history look like, is that it's, it's full of possibilities. I mean, the image that I, I always come back to uh, about the conventional story, uh, the one where you go from this stage to that stage and so on, is that it's like a dead weight. It's like a ball and chain around your ankle. And you won't find in our book um, you know, any policies or prescriptions uh, about uh, how to get unstuck. What we do, though, try to do um, is use evidence to clip away at the links in those chains. Um, so we're not saying, you know, this is what we think you should do next, but we're saying, you can go there without this bloody great ball around your ankle. I think uh, one of the, one of the, the dead the, weight of history. One of the people in the online has asked a question about more examples, and one of them that I find it absolutely stunningly striking in the book is um, structures of seasonality. Right. Where uh, you know, for us, uh, life is pretty much the same all year round. Now, that, that's a that's a actually slightly controversial thing to say uh, to make it sound like that there's nothing adventurous or experimental in our lives at all. There really are. But nothing quite so dramatically experimental, or at least no, nothing quite as Especially comparable. in the Nordic countries. I was talking recently in, yeah. in, um, uh, in Denmark and in, in Finland where, you know, you do have more in the way of seasonal variations right. still. Um, people go out to their uh, whatever, winter homes and so on. But this is a great example of... of uh, not being stuck and and actually those funny ancient burials that led us back to the anthropological literature you remember we we're talking about living on the edge of a glacier i mean it doesn't get much more seasonal than that with great herds of woolly mammoth coming through your landscape once or twice a year uh, made us go back to this fascinating literature in, in anthropology 
uh, about societies that have more than one social structure that alternate uh, or even become entirely different people in the summer uh, and in the winter. And what's fascinating, there are many fascinating things about those, but one of them uh, is that it, it implies a very high level of consciousness. And this is consciously, uh, constantly emphasized by the anthropologists, including Levi-Strauss, is that if you have your foot in one social reality in the winter, which may be a very hierarchical one, uh, and then your foot in another kind of social world uh, in the, the spring and the summer, which may be a very, very egalitarian one, you are in a position to step in and step out and reflect, um, which is fascinating because it actually implies, uh, far from being stupid, it implies a, a great deal of reflexivity and, and consciousness on the part of early humans. Um, so, you know, this is an example where the anthropology it doesn't tell you about early forms of human life, but it helps you to think through what is otherwise, you know, some very puzzling evidence for rich burials in contexts where you have no kingdoms, chiefdoms, yeah. states, now, just, just to ask a mean question on that, though, yeah. uh, how, the, the length of time that that kind of seasonal form of life mm. went on was very long, wasn't it? The length of, uh, of human history that there was that it was thousands of years. Well, the thing about seasonality, it's, I mean, it's wrong to suggest that it is the seasonal variations that create this capacity for consciousness. No, no, I'm not saying that. It's yeah, about yeah. Uh, the fact that this way of life, this one foot in one yes. way of living and another foot in another way, of altogether other way of living, was sustained over a long period. It wasn't like they, human beings managed to do this for about five years and then gave up. It was it was a long time, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair observation. Yeah. I mean, that's what it looked like in the book. Yeah. And maybe you know what the next line is, which which is you know why why can't you think that they were stuck? Because why they just can't... they just kept doing the same thing each year. They were stuck in the duality of seasons, um... and you could think that we're less stuck because we have like all sorts of. Well, as far as I can tell, when you step outside now we're losing the seasons, actually. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> Which yeah. is a pretty I, I wasn't thinking thought. of seasonal uh, <laughs> yeah. variations, but yeah. anyway, um, that's a, mm. that was a mean question. Let's have another nice question. Yeah, one here. Thanks so much. Hello, my name's Felix. Um, my question, I've got two questions, actually. My first question is... Uh, one question. One question. Okay, I'll choose. Um, okay, I'll go for my first one. Are you suggesting, does your book suggest that human hierarchies are not so socially conditioned because you see hierarchical human cultural cultures in the earliest human societies that you found? They're not so egalitarian. Does that suggest that they are not socially conditioned? Well, I think what it suggests is that hierarchy is always present. But what really struck us in so many cases, not just the ones I've talked about, but many that we discuss in the book, is the sheer range of inventiveness and creativity in the ways that people have found to contain hierarchy, um, which um, are just impressive. And I think this partly is the point, that when we stop producing these rather sort of caricature-ish notions of early humanity, 
we rehumanize the past, we actually claim back a lot for ourselves. I mean, we enrich the archive of what it means to be Homo sapiens, and we create a much uh, richer sort of reservoir from which to talk about possibilities, going back to Sophie's question, um, than is usually considered relevant. You know, when people talk about alternatives, they may go back to the French Revolution or something. In fact, there's now this much greater, uh, as I say, sort of archive of information uh, about all of these other kinds of social contributions that we can look at and, and reflect on and consider. They're not solutions to contemporary problems. They're not templates for you know, what we should do next, but they show that in a particular given set of circumstances, material historical circumstances, when we've been told people got stuck, stuck in agriculture, stuck in empires, whatever it may be, actually there was a lot of other stuff going on as well. It's really uh, lovely that you come back to that point. It was something I, I found very impressive through the book was a uh, a running theme on uh, the, the significance in all human ways of life of uh, conceptions of what it is to be a human being. Mm. These, are, these are, as it were, fundamental um, elements of the who that we are. And you, you, mm. you note that a lot of tribes give themselves the name human being. That, that as it were, they understand themselves in, the, in, the, in, that, in that way. Uh, in, in the course of the 20th century, at least two writers uh, said that all politics presupposes a conception of what it is to be a human being. And I think that your thought there that part of what you're doing is enriching us, our understanding of what it means to be a human being is a really great one because obviously it does um, open up that kind of space of possibilities of thinking about what we can be. Okay, um, let's stop with that. And um, it would remain for me just to thank the people who are here uh, online and to thank especially the people who've made it out today uh, to join us at the LSE for a very nice conversation with David Wengro. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.